this morning, uh, I wanna share with you out of a familiar passage of scripture uh, in the Old Testament uh, that tells us the, the story of the exit of the Hebrew children out of Egyptian bondage, the crossing over of the Jordan River into the promised land and the events that unfolded. One of the reasons why I love preaching out of the old covenant is because it makes me thankful for the new covenant. And we believe in the authority and the inspiration of scripture from the very first words in Genesis in the beginning, God, to the very final words of Scripture in the book of Revelation. I believe in the canon of Scripture. I believe in the unchanging truth of God's Word. Culture can go one way. Politics can go one way. Systems can go one way. But I like to say, let God be true and let every man be a lighter. I am unashamed and unapologetic to stake my life on the inspired words of the one that we worship because it becomes our basic instructions for life and for godliness. When we gather on Sunday morning, we sing the word, we pray the word, we preach the word, we teach the word, and the net result of that activity is faith rises in your heart to believe God at his word and say, God, let it be unto me according to your word. So we are people of the word. You know, people say, oh, it's pursuit one of those spirit churches or one of those word churches. You a Bible church? Are you just kind of a spiritual Pentecostal church? I say we as a both and. The pursuit is a place where both the word and the spirit change lives. And I feel like if we can continue to pledge our allegiance and our fidelity, not only to the high king of heaven, but his written commands for us below, that we can continue to prosper and grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so with that being said, let me begin this morning. You know, here is the good news. Moses has led three million Hebrew children out of Egyptian slavery with the promise that God has prepared a land for his people to inherit. Here's the bad news. That journey from Egyptian bondage to the land flowing with milk and honey should have taken 11 days to complete. And yet the people have been lost in the wilderness for 40 years. And for 40 years, God shows himself faithful by sending manna from heaven to feed his people. God shows himself faithful by causing water to come from the rock to quench their thirst. He shows himself faithful by leading them with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. When the Egyptians tried to capture them, God split the Red Sea. When sickness tried to overtake them, God healed their diseases. When the Amalekites tried to destroy them, God's sword defended them. And after 40 years of God's unbroken faithfulness, how does God's people respond? They grumbled and complained. They resisted and ignored. They backslid and they doubted. They, they, they said things like this. Well, at least in Egypt, they had onions. You know, we were in bondage, sure. 
Our Egyptian taskmasters were brutal, sure. Our children were born into literal bondage, sure. Oh yeah, they released governmental edicts to kill all the baby boys, sure. But at least the cuisine and the buffet of Egypt was better than this miraculous bread that falls from heaven. But here's what I love. Even in the midst of their rebellion and hard-heartedness, they had one thing going for them. They served a covenant-keeping God who refused to give up on the very people that he had called his own. They were dark, but he found them lovely. They were broken, but he had found them worthy. They were unrighteous, but he, he is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, nor repay us according to our iniquities. God had every reason to give up on these people, but he refused to leave them as orphans. He walked with them and he taught them and he provided them because they served a covenant-keeping God. And hear me today. God wasn't lost but his people were. Everyone in this room today likely shares a similar trauma. We can all remember the feeling of being momentarily lost when we were young, lost at school, lost at church, lost at camp, lost in the mall. Did you ever have your name called out over the loudspeaker of a store? because you somehow became separated from your parents and the last resort was a public announcement just hoping someone would show up and claim you and take you home. You know, every time I got lost, I just assumed I missed the rapture. But there is only one thing more scary than being lost as a child and that's being lost as an adult. <laughs> No, I ain't talking about getting lost on the way to a restaurant after church that you've never been to before. I'm talking about getting lost in that abuse, getting lost in that addiction, getting lost in that divorce, getting lost in a world that feels like it is spinning out of control and the harder you try to hang on, the more you end up alone. And I wish I could say that those feelings of being lost only happen when you're unsaved. But in Exodus, it wasn't just the Egyptians who were lost. It was God's people who were lost as well. And friend, there will be seasons of your faith where miracles that should have been instant end up taking a lot longer. And prayers that should have been answered seem delayed or even forgotten. And relationships that should have worked. And ideas that should have succeeded. And plans that should have prospered just don't seem to prevail. And you must remind yourself, even though I might feel lost at the moment, the God I serve never is. And I've got good news for you today. There is something stronger than the existential feelings of loss and confusion. 
There is a God who has bound himself in covenant and he won't ever leave you or forsake you because there isn't one place that you'll ever go that he hasn't already been. If you're walking in the wilderness, he's walking right beside you. If you find yourself in the valley, he is walking right beside you. It's not just that God celebrates my good moments. His presence is most felt when I am most crushed because in my weakness, it is his strength that is made manifest. Is it not Christ who walks through the walls to interrupt the grief of his friends? Is it not Christ who stoops down in the dirt to interrupt the sorrow of the woman caught in the act of prostitution? Is it not Christ who enters into the house of Zacchaeus to interrupt the confusion of a tax collector? Oh, he is a husband to the widow. He is a father to the orphan. He is the joy to the barren. And he is the lifter of our heavy heads. Why do I have hope for the Northwest? Because we still serve the covenant-keeping God. And that God declares, I will not forget you for I have engraved you on the palm of my hands see Moses will die before the people ever reach the promised land an entire generation will pass away before ever seeing the fullness of what God has secured for them but God never takes a Moses home without raising up a Joshua to take his place. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Joshua to now lead the people into the promised land that him and Caleb had spied out nearly 40 years ago? I had almost forgotten what this place looked like, Caleb. I had almost forgotten the land that was flowing with milk and honey, Caleb. I had almost forgotten about the clean rivers and the rolling hills. I had almost lost heart, but instead I believed I would see the goodness of God in the land of the living. We saw it 40 years ago, Caleb, and we're seeing it now again. But this time we will build houses and we will raise families and we will plant vineyards because this time we are home. And that's where the story picks up in Joshua 2. The people have crossed the Jordan River. God has given them the land of the Canaanites. And Joshua 2 records their first interaction with the promised land that they had only ever seen in their dreams. Joshua 2 and verse 1, Then Joshua sent out two spies from the Israelite camp. He instructed them, Scout out the land on the other side of the Jordan, especially around Jericho. So the two men set out, and they came to the house of a, of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there that night. But see, someone told the king of Jericho, Some Israelites have come here tonight to spy out your land. So the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, bring out the men who have come into your house, for they have come to spy out the whole land. Joshua would enter the promised land at 80 years old. 
He would govern Israel for 30 years and die at 110. In that 30-year time period, Joshua would lead Israel in 13 battles against their enemies as God's people transitioned from inheriting a promise to possessing a promise. Now, you would think that after being lost for 40 years, they might get some time to relax when they entered in to the land of promise. But as soon as they cross that Jordan River, it becomes obvious that Jericho is a problem that needs to be solved. Oh, you got to hear me, Pursuit. God doesn't give empty land as your inheritance. He gives occupied land. See, the church encounters friction because we are disarming rulers, authorities, and powers of the air. Neutrality is a lie. It does not exist. For Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. See, every time a drug addict gets free, it's the disarming of Satan's power. Every time a family gets healthy, it's the disarming of Satan's power. Every time a kid gets baptized, it's the disarming of Satan's power. We are in a multi-generational battle for the heart and soul of this region. And that's why Jericho doesn't scare me. It excites me. It's just the next city to come in to the saving power of King Jesus. See, now watch. The journey isn't meant to sap your strength. It's meant to summon your strength because there are some Jerichos and some Seattles and some Kirklands and some Snohomishes that are waiting on the other side of our willingness to possess that which God has promised. Let me tell you a story. One of America's richest families, the Vanderbilts, provide a cautionary tale about inherited wealth that illustrates this issue. Cornelius Vanderbilt, the family patriarch, managed to transform $100 borrowed from his mother into a $100 million fortune by the time of his death in 1877. Today, that is the equivalent of about $185 billion, which at the time was more than the holdings of the entire U.S. Treasury. But within a short span of only 30 years after his death, most of Vanderbilt's estate was gone, rapidly depleted by heirs who gave up on producing wealth and instead turned their full attention to consuming it. Within 50 years, most of the children and grandchildren had lost their entire fortunes with their opulent homes sold at public auction to cover their debts. When the remaining Vanderbilts held a reunion at Vanderbilt University in 1973, there were 120 family members in attendance and not a single millionaire was amongst them. Today, it is estimated that 70% of wealthy families will lose their wealth by the second generation, and 90% will lose it by the third. See, there is a reason for that. The generation that earns the wealth is the generation that worked and experienced hardship to make sure that they achieve something better for themselves. 
the next generation while growing up, they might see their parents' struggles and, and even have a good understanding of the value and sacrifice of hard work. But as they become more comfortable as adults, they begin to forget the frugal aspects of their lives growing up. Oh, but the, by the time the third generation arises... They never realized the struggle and sacrifice that the previous generations endured. The only thing they know is a life of plenty, and they often lack an understanding of what is needed to create and maintain the lifestyles that they have grown accustomed to. Hear me? A generation that hasn't experienced sacrifice cannot be trusted with inheritance because inheritance without sacrifice leads to bondage, not freedom. Oh, has God given us a mandate for this region? If the answer is yes, then let us possess it fully, leaving no stone unturned because this place belongs to God. In verse four, the story continues. But the woman, she had taken the two men and hidden them. She told the king, yes, the men came to me, but I don't know where they come from. And before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof. She said to them, I know the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Oh, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water on the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who you completely destroyed. Oh, when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on earth below. I don't know about you, but I like the theology of Rahab in Joshua 2. It's a lot better than the theology coming out of most major Christian universities today. I like Rahab because she is tapping in to a new covenant reality when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. He says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth even as it's being done in heaven. Rahab refused to buy into the Gnostic lie of the separation between the spiritual and the material. She said, it's not just that God will save your spirit. It's not just that God will give you a spot in eternity in heaven. It's that this God that you worship, he is king over every realm of the earth and his glory will cover this place even as waters cover the sea. Our hearts melted in fear when we heard about what your God did. See, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. When Rahab sees these two spies, she shook. I've heard legends about what you did. I've heard that you served the God who sent a wind to separate the Red Sea. I've heard that you took down the kings of the Amorites. I heard that God fed you in the wilderness when you were starving. I've heard that when you pray, your God answers with fire. And I am convinced your God has given you this entire land. For he is not just God above, he is God below. Now you got to see this. You got to see this. What Rahab says to the spies 
is actually the fulfillment of what Moses sings as a prophetic song 40 years prior. You'll find that in Exodus 15. If you were to look it up in your Bible above Exodus 15, it would say the song of Moses. See, in Exodus 15, the people have just crossed the Red Sea. God has miraculously made a way where there seems to be no way. Moses is so overcome by the provision of God, he breaks into a prophetic song. And watch what he sings. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass over. Oh Lord, tell the people pass over whom you have purchased. And when Rahab talks to the two spies, she says, our hearts, they have melted with fear and with dread. Think about it. Joshua would have heard Moses sing this song 40 years ago. And what do you think is happening in his heart as Rahab says these words? I imagine inside of Joshua, he is thinking to himself, my God hasn't forgotten. My God never fails. My God is always faithful. Just look at what my God has done on our behalf. Hear me, friend. The song of the last generation became a sword for the next generation as the courage of Joshua creates a testimony in the heart of Rahab. I know the Lord has given you this land for our hearts, they have melted in fear. I am convinced if fathers will sing in the wilderness, sons will prosper in the promised land. If fathers will sing when things look impossible, sons and daughters will inherit promises that shake cities and transform nations. That's why we worship the way that we do. These are not just empty words. They are prophetic melodies that carry within them the declaration of God who shows his faithfulness to the next generation by fulfilling the promises he made to the last one. Moses sung it in the wilderness because he saw it in the spirit. And your situation might look hopeless today, but you've got a reason to release psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs because they are the building block of your breakthrough. Me and my boy, Lighty, we was going to a Five Guys Burgers the other night. So we live in Snohomish and Monroe's pretty close. And so we was driving, I was taking them out on a special date and <laughs> we just sitting in the car and I'm not really talking and He's not really talking and all of a sudden, I hear him under his breath, barely a whisper, he begins to sing. I am a holy nation, a warrior clean and free. All of a sudden, I thought to myself, that's Lighty's song. That's the song Lighty wrote. 
He heard that song in this gathering of local believers. Now, he might not even understand the entire theological ramifications or implications of the things that he is singing, but I thought to myself, it's the song of a father creating courage in my natural son. It is the song of the last generation becoming a building block for the next generation. And I am convinced that if we will sing in the midst of our wilderness, it'll create courage and boldness for our kids to run further than we have ever gone. Now watch what Rahab says to these spies. Verse 12, swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family for I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sign. Give me a sign that you will spare the lives of my mother and father. Give me a sign that you will spare the lives of my brothers and sisters. And before they left, the men told her, we will be bound by the oath that we have taken if you follow our instructions. When we come into the land, you must leave a scarlet rope hanging from the window through which you let us down. And you and all your family members must be inside this house. I accept your terms, she replied. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord to her window. It's no mistake that the rope was scarlet red. It's no accident that this was used as a sign of her salvation. When the angel of death swept through Egypt, it passed over the Hebrew households who had blood on their doorposts. It didn't matter the past mistakes of the family inside the house. When the blood was on the doorpost, death passed over them. And when Jericho would fall and the city would be destroyed and only rubble would be left behind, there was only one family that made it out alive and it was led by a woman named Rahab who had a scarlet red cord hanging from her window for all to see. You gotta get this friend, you gotta get it. The next time Rahab is mentioned is in Matthew 1, 3,000 years later in the genealogy of Christ because after she was saved, she would marry a man named Salmon from the tribe of Judah. They would have a son named Boaz. Boaz would have a son named Obed. Obed would have a son named Jesse. Jesse would have a son named David. And David would be known as the father of Jesus Christ. The only force strong enough to take a prostitute from Jericho and place her in the lineage of the Messiah is the scarlet red cord of his redeeming blood. You might not know this, but 
that a scarlet thread was used on the curtains of the tabernacle in the wilderness. A scarlet thread was used in the garments and the linen ephod of the Levitical priests. And friend, when you look back on the history of your life, can't you see a scarlet thread woven into the fabric of your story every step of the way? I was in a pastoral counseling appointment just the other week. A man was speaking with me about the trials and the traumas of his life. He said, Pastor, my family's all messed up. My, my marriage is all messed up. My business failed. My finances, these all messed up. My friends have left. My house got taken. The dog ran away. Sound like a sad country song. Man, my life is a wreck. <laughs> And he said this to me near the conclusion of our appointment. He said, Pastor, I feel like I am just hanging on by a thread. And as soon as he said it, I felt faith come alive in my heart. If all you are is hanging on by a scarlet thread, a scarlet thread is enough because the blood is still the blood. It worked back for Moses. It worked for Joshua. 